You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Listening to a local talk show, radio caller calls in, someone who lives in Seattle or the area, and he's a school teacher, and he says, you know what I love about Seattle is that I've taught here for many years, and so I have watched... Uh, a lot of these kids grow up, and I think by now, between children, uh, alumni, and uh, parents, I know some 40% of the people that live in my neighborhood. And he's really excited about that. Somebody writes in, though, the very next uh, comment on the show is uh, someone who says, you know, that to me sounds like living hell. You know, I really don't want to get all that involved in the dysfunctions of my neighbors. And uh, good fences make good neighbors, do they not? And uh, there's some truth to that. And I find, you know, I told you I'm a uh, recovering individualist, you know, and so my mind wanders go, goes to, over right to uh, the French existentialist Jean Paul Sartre, who writes this play called No Exit. And it's about hell, right? And it's three people who are in hell, except they're just in a small room, and they, they sit there waiting for the torturer to arrive, and they realize we are the torturer. There's nobody else who's coming, and it's just about having to listen to each other's stories for the rest of eternity that, that is the punishment. And uh, so last week, we, uh, lo- we saw an image for the church that the early church began to experience as they met together. It's the image of a house. They would meet house uh, by house. And the Apostle Paul, um, uh, well, through Luke, gives us a, a really um, a beautiful image of what that community looked like as we look through the window uh, late one night past the shoulder of Eutychus, who's sitting there on the sill, and into that room. And we see the community that becomes the church of Jesus Christ and how they relate to one another. Uh, but if you're like me, you would prefer, actually, to be looking from the outside through the window. You know, I just as soon stand on the ladder and look in and kind of observe other people having uh, a community because, personally, I get a little bit of relational claustrophobia from time to time. A lot of people crammed in a tight space, and I'm not sure how thrilled I am about that. And so as we continue, in fact, conclude this series on community uh, today, we end with a final image. It's an image that the Apostle Paul gives us in the book of Ephesians, and it's an image for community that shows just how essential it is in your life and in mine. It's the image of a body. A body. And, and as much as a body seems to you and to me to be sometimes limitation on our lives, uh, Sometimes it's the things that limit us that make us the most free. So we want to talk about that with you uh, this morning. I invite you to pull out your Bible or the Pew Bible on the rack in front of you and open up to page 951 of the Pew Bible or Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, Our text this morning is 4, 1 through 16, but we'll only read the first six verses together. Let's stand and uh, read aloud together Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're reading God's holy word. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. Paul begs his hearer, he urges us to recognize that we are in a body. Now, physically speaking, that's not always good news for us. Um, as I age, my body, I can't quite drive it as hard as I used to drive it. I, I associate it with limitations, with fatigue, uh, hurts, pains, and uh, sometimes with temptations. And so there, in the history of, of many cultures and ethnicities, there has always been a temptation to see spirituality as an escape from the body into kind of the, uh, the, the religious ether where we feel most free in the invisible world, in the pure forms of, of space and, and a true spirit. We escape our bodies, or at least we want to, but the Bible never allows this. From the very beginning of the biblical narrative, the physical world is good. It's good stuff. It's material. Our bodies are good stuff because they're made by God. And in fact, our redemption is not an escape from our bodies. It's a redemption of our bodies. You see, Jesus Christ was risen from the dead physically, bodily risen. And that's good news for us in our bodies as well. Of course, Paul's speaking metaphorically. He's not talking about a physical body. Uh, Jesus Christ's physical body is at the right hand of the Father. He's already been ascended. But he says the implications of what Jesus has done have, uh, have to do with how we relate to one another. And it's as though, metaphorically speaking, we have become the body of, of Jesus Christ. He, he, he tells us that at uh, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 20 and 23, where it says, he says, God raised Jesus from the dead and made him the head over the church, which is his body. So this image becomes very important when we think about community, the, the image of a, of a body. We, it's his church. And you say, fine, that's fine, until you meet your first Christian. And then you go, really? You know, um, Do you think, God, you and I could do this, uh, just you and me? Do you think we could have a kind of a spiritual relationship? I'd be a lot freer if I weren't encumbered by uh, other people. I'd, I'd experience less hurt if I could just in the privacy of my own prayer closet relate to you very individually. And the Lord says, no, I, I put you in a body. That's just the truth of the matter. And I argue back. I've got three arguments that I, that I try to use over the years against the Lord on this. And, and, and these are the, the first one is that I already have enough friends. You know, I, my problem is not loneliness. I'm not looking for a bunch of new friends. I've, I've got enough already. I've got two. Um, I, my wife put a little heart on the mirror this morning. And uh, Jeff just gave me a box of uh, uh, sweethearts. So I'm all set. I don't really have relational capacity for any more. So that's my first argument. I already have enough friends. My second argument is that people get in the way. And you know that that's true. If you've ever done you know, a school project where they make you do it as a group project, you know it's going to be a total pain. And hey, I'm a high-performance person, right? So God, if you just give me the stuff I need, let me run by myself, and we'll get the job done much better, much faster. Trust me on this one. Okay, so that's my second argument. It's a good one. People just get in the way. And the third argument is this, my faith is too private. It's too private. I don't want to lose it, squander it, expose it to anybody else. I just, I cherish it and I keep it inside of me. Well, God says, not so much, George. You are uh, in a body. And here's why. Here's the thing about bodies for Paul. They grow. 
Bodies grow. And it's deeper in this passage. We see down in verses 14 and 13, Paul draws a contrast. He says, you know, once you were children, the word he uses are infants, babies, like these that we baptize. Someday you're going to be mature. So there's a progression from being infants in our faith to being mature in our faith. But notice the overlay. When he describes infancy, he doesn't speak singularly. He speaks of a plural. We were children, many children, not connected to one another. But when we grow up to maturity, the actual phrase Paul uses here is a mature man. And, of course, that man is Jesus Christ. It's not that we become mature men. It's because that we grow up into him, men and women alike, into a mature man. So we go from plurality to singularity. Maturity is defined by a unity uh, in his body. And so there are three lessons for us, because Paul's going to use this word body three times in the first half of Ephesians 4. And I want to look at each of those three times and draw for us a lesson about our own growth uh, that can only happen when we're in community, when we are in a body. And these are the three lessons. First of all, we need the body to grow in our identity. We need the body to grow in our accomplishments. And we need the body to grow in our relationships. Okay, Identity, accomplishments, and relationships. Let's begin with identity. The first lesson is that in community, we grow into a singular identity. First use of the word body is here in verse 4 of the chapter. You read it with me. There is one body. And he goes on and on about everything else. There's one of. There's one body. It's a singularity that we're a part of. And one of the reasons is that we're to be singular people. There's but to be one George, thank God. Uh, and, and my identity is to be singular. Here, here's why I say that. If, if you look at the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters, you realize Paul is all about unity. He, he, what he sees Jesus Christ having done is unifying all things. He's been raised above every principality, power, authority, in heaven, and he is the one who will someday, we read in verse 10, which, by the way, is the key verse for the whole book, verse 10 of chapter 1, God will someday gather up all things in Jesus. He's kind of summing it all up in Jesus. That word he uses for gathering is a rhetorical word. In Greek rhetoric, you'd find it at the end of a letter. It speaks of what happens at the end of a letter when, when the writer sums up. Here's the main point of what I've been trying to say. Or someone who's giving a lecture or a speech would sum up at the end of her speech what she's been trying to say. It's the main point. So Paul is saying, I'll tell you what all of human history, what the whole cosmos is ultimately going to be all about. I can tell you what the main point is someday going to be shown to be, and that is Jesus Christ. He's the main point of it all. And so when we come to now the application part of the book of Ephesians, which begins in chapter 4, Paul says, now I want you to know that He's to be the main point of your identity as well. Now, this is not a point that goes unchallenged in your life, because like the cosmos, you also have principalities and powers, rulers and authorities, do you not? I do. I've got a banker, a, a parent, um, a professor, you know, a, a, an employer, all of these authorities in my life, and they tend to sometimes pull us in different directions. But Paul says, no. There's to be one main point for your life, and it's to be Jesus Christ. And we discover that main point in a body, a singularity. So my best argument is I have enough friends 
um, doesn't seem to work because uh, Jesus says to me, George, it's not about your friends. I'm glad you have your two friends. But you see, the difference between friends and community is friends are people you pick. Community people I pick. See the difference? When you pick your friends, you're at the center. When I pick your friends, I'm at the center. And I'm the main point, remember. Princeton professor Robert Wuthnow writes a book called Sharing the Journey. And he makes a fascinating distinction between uh, relationships that are linear or relationships that are circular. Let me read from uh, Sharing the Journey. He says, an elementary school teacher in Los Angeles who had been in a group at her church but who had dropped out several years ago drew a nice contrast between these kinds of relationships. And here's the teacher. She says, I used to be in this group of people who met weekly. And and that was a specific circle of friends where we really did help each other out, sharing problems, sharing whatever. But now my friends are more linear. I'm friends with this person. I'm friends with that person. But I don't have a circle of friends who sort of know each other right now. And then Wuthnow draws out the significance of this. He says... He says the difference is that a circle provides for more internal accountability than a series of linear relationships. If your friends don't know each other, you can, even without thinking about it, play up one side of yourself to this friend and a different side to someone else. One friend, for example, can be a confidant on spiritual issues. Another can share babysitting but have no spiritual points of intersection at all. And when your friends all know each other because they are in the same group, you, and here's the main point, you are more likely to experience the tendency toward personal consistency that fellow believers refer to as discipleship. Your friends can compare notes to see if you are treating them all the same. See? They can decide whether you need advice. I'm not sure I want advice. Uh, Thank you very much. But you can see what he's saying. He's saying, well, George, you've got friends at the gym, you've got friends in the neighborhood, you've got friends at church, you've got friends at work. All of those know a different George. How many Georges are there actually? There should be one George because there's one body and there's one main point. And when you have a circle of friends, they all experience the same George and it has a way of pulling your otherwise fragmented identity together, drawing you towards the center in Jesus Christ. By the way... In the last 20 years, the number of Americans who report that they have a circle of four to five friends has dropped by a third. In 20 years, a third of us can no longer say we have a circle of friends who know each other. That's dramatic. So the first thing that uh, the body image does for Paul is it says, you know what, in community, you grow into a singular identity. Jesus becomes the main point of who you are. Now he moves on from identity to actions, from who we are to what we do in the second section, which begins at verse 7. And here we come to our accomplishments. And the lesson is this, the second one, that in community, we grow in accomplishing things for others. In community, we grow in accomplishing things for others. This section, uh, verse 7 and following, it's at the end of it that Paul uses the word body, but he's clearly starting to talk about gifts, individuality. Each one has a different grace, he calls it, an experience of Jesus' grace. It's very unique to you. Nobody else shares it quite the same way. Let me read these verses because this is, this is an interesting section. Paul says in verse 7, But each of us was given grace 
according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, by the way, pause it by it. He means the scriptures and specifically Psalm 68, 18. He's going to quote it. When he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. That's an Old Testament passage. Now Paul's going to do a little Bible study. Let's put in parentheses. Now Paul says, when it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he goes on to talk about the gifts. Now, what in the world is Paul talking about? No one really knows. Scholars debate back and forth on this. I'm just going to tell you my uh, opinion and uh, describe it as though it were totally true. Uh, And I feel some confidence about this, but you don't have to accept this. Here's, Here's my interpretation of what Paul is saying here. See, if you read Psalm 68, what you're going to find is it's a story about uh, God coming down from Mount Sinai, where he gives the Ten Commandments to Israel, winning a great battle against the Canaanites, and then going up Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem, into his temple. That's where his glory resides. You see, there's this coming down, winning a great battle, and then going back up. And he's described as a king in the ancient world who would win a battle and take spoils of war. He would take uh, the uh, combatants and make them slaves, captives, and pull them in a train behind him uh, into the place of celebration and conquest. And so what Paul is saying, do you see this? Do you see this? Psalm, it's prophetic. It's speaking really ultimately about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has come down from heaven to win a great battle for us. See, he's taken captive everything that captivates you and me, our addictions, our brokenness, our health, our sin, our death. He's taken it all and he's put it into a tomb where it's buried and will return no more. And then he takes us with him out of that tomb and ascends up into the heavenly places. But the story's not over. See, Paul says, like every conquering king, he has taken these captives and he's going to give them back to his people. Spoils of war. And so what God has done is he's taken you and me and given us back as gifted people to the world to be his representatives in the world of his mission and ministry. He sends us as gifted people. So in a sense, your work, your accomplishments and mine are all derivative accomplishments. They all follow the great accomplishment of Jesus Christ. The battle's already been won. And now he sends you back with an experience of grace to share that uh, with other people. But notice two things. Uh, First of all, your gifts, your experience of grace, it's not meant for you. It's meant for service. It's about uh, other people. And, of course, Jesus was the greatest servant of them all. His ministry, his life was marked by serving other people. So we shouldn't be surprised that his body would be, would be marked in the same way. That's what God has given us capacity for. It's to serve. First, Peter says, like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. The second thing we notice about this is that our gifts are partial. Uh, they're incomplete. None of us has the full package. Somehow, culturally, you and I have been taught to think that 
our work, our accomplishment is about competition, right? That we know we're not perfect, we don't have the full package, but uh, we can compensate for our weaknesses and accentuate the weaknesses of other people in the marketplace, and that's how we get ahead. That's how we accomplish. It's about competition, not in the body of Christ. The body of Christ is not defined by competition. Our accomplishments are defined by collaboration. You see, my best argument, that people get in the way, just falls by the wayside when you realize that people are the way. It's all about other people. The, the phrase individual accomplishment is an oxymoron in the kingdom of God. You see, each of us needs others to use their gifts in order to be successful. You never hear a, um, a heart say, oh, I'm really glad that cancer is in the pancreas. This is going to get me ahead, right? Not in the same body. If you've got cancer anywhere in your body, if any member of the body is not fully operating at full health, you're going to die too. You see, every member of the body must engage their gifts in order for the body to function as it's designed to function. You'll never fulfill your destiny. Your accomplishments will always be diminished unless the person sitting next to you fulfills theirs and uses their gifts as well. The story of, of uh, the Olympics, and it was a special Olympics, beautiful young girl standing on the starting line. The world would call her, I suppose, intellectually challenged. And yet the starting gun goes off and she runs with all the others who are next to her and she screams with delight, yippee, we're going, we're racing. And she's careening across the tracks, hitting all the lanes. But she's out in front. She moves ahead. She's got about 40 yards on the field when she comes to the finish line and just stops. She stops. What's wrong? Won't cross. She turns around and waits for her friends and they all take hands and then they cross together and she says, we all win. And that's the way it is in the body of Christ. We all win when we win together and never as individuals. You see, I need your gifts. You see, the world needs your gifts and the world needs us to use our gifts together. Listen to uh, Stephen Pressfield here. He's a Marine that's just written this book, The War of Art. Um, Pressfield says, if you were meant to cure cancer or write a symphony or crack cold fusion and you don't do it, you not only hurt yourself or even destroy yourself, you hurt your children. You hurt me. You hurt the planet. You shame the angels who watch over you and you spite the Almighty who created you and only you with your unique gifts for the sole purpose of nudging the human race one millimeter farther along its path back to God. Creative work is not a selfish act or a bid for attention on the part of the actor. It's a gift to the world and every being in it. Don't cheat us of your contribution. Give us what you've got. See, that's what Jesus Christ is saying to his body. That's what Paul is saying in a body. Don't cheat us of what you got. We need your gift, everyone, to fulfill the accomplishments that Jesus Christ has for his body. So it's about identity. It's about accomplishment. Finally, the body image suggests growth in relationships. In community, we grow in relationships that express God's love. That's the third lesson. In community, we grow in relationships that express God's love. Look at verse 16. You see Paul's going to use that word body one last time. and He's talking about growth and he's talking about relationships. He says you've got to speak the truth in love. That's how the body grows. Do you see that? Verse 15, speaking the truth in love, 
we grow up. The truth is that your accomplishments and mine mean nothing without love. Nothing. That's the point that Apostle Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, the great love chapter. He's gone on about all the gifts that people are given, the accomplishments of the, uh, the Corinthians there, and he goes, but all of this, as wonderful it is, means nothing. It's just empty without love. It's about the people in your life. That's what you learn as you mature, as you grow up. It's about the people and the relationships uh, that you have. And so Paul says, speak truth in love. Here's how you grow in the body. Speak truth. Well, what truth? And he's given us a definition of truth in Ephesians 1.13, where he puts the phrase, the word of truth, right next to the gospel of your salvation. He says, we've been given and believe the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. So for Paul, truth is the gospel, which is a, a, <clears throat> a fancy word for the good news. To speak the truth is to speak good news. It's not, he's not advocating total honesty necessarily, which I I suppose that's important. Except, you know, when your friend asks you, do do I look fat? And and there's that moment, you you go, wait, I'm supposed to speak the truth, but in love. No, he's not talking about that. He's talking about speaking good news. It's actually not about me or you. It's about Jesus Christ and what he is doing in your, in your life. Who he says you are is, is the truth that uh, cause, causes our relationships to grow. You may have wondered why, uh, when Paul is saying everybody's got gifts in the body, he would single out the list he does in verse 11. He's talking about apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors and teachers. You know, why just those? Well, the reason, I think, is because those are the speaking gifts. Those are the gifts that speak good news. It, it, later on, I think those are the, the ligaments that knit and, t- and, and tie the body together. Uh, there's kind of a connecting tissue because they're the ones who are called specially to speak the good news. But every member does its part as it speaks the truth and love to one another. So it's your mission and it's mine and it's how relationships deepen. So my, uh, my best argument here, faith is too private. It's true that uh, faith is personal, but it's not true that it's private. I need you to grow in my faith. And we need each other. And the reason for this, I think, is that you know who the hardest per- you know who has the hardest time forgiving you in the world. You know who it is? It's you. You have the hardest time forgiving yourself, and and so do I. And so you could say to yourself, "Well, you know, I, I know the good news. I'll just preach it to myself. Uh, I listen to sermons as an individual." In all of that, it's you trying to speak words of forgiveness on the basis of Jesus' work to yourself, and it is not enough. You need to hear good news from the lips of somebody else, a friend. You need someone to hold you and say, you are forgiven. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in his book, Life Together, sin demands to have a person by himself alone. Sin withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. The more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. By contrast, when we bring all that we are, with all of our sin and gunk, into the fellowship of Jesus Christ, it's not that we become better people, it's that we become forgiven people. We experience the reality of God's grace for us, and that is transformational. 
Bonhoeffer continues. He says, now the fellowship bears the sin of the brother. He's no longer alone with his evil, for he has cast off his sin and handed it over to God. It's been taken away from him. Now he stands in the fellowship of sinners who live by the grace of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now he can be a sinner and still enjoy the grace of God. You see, friends, words matter. What you and I say and hear matters tremendously in our life. I think we underestimate the power of words in our lives. Paul doesn't. He says in verse 25 of chapter 4, Speak the truth, that's the good news, to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. We belong to each other. He says in verse 29, Let no evil talk come out of your mouth, but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. Think of that. Your words can give grace to those who hear. Soak in their words to you. What a power that is. Encouragement is always good, but there's nothing more powerful than words like, I know you're disheartened, but God in Jesus Christ has not given up on you. I know you have destroyed this relationship and you're crushed, but God hasn't given up on you and he's a healer. I know that you're living in the shadow of death right now and you're totally disoriented. But I know that in Jesus Christ, there's a living hope for you and new direction in your life. See, those are the words speak truth in love into our lives and they create deep relationships. Every Saul needs his Ananias to come and lay his hands on him and say, brother, be filled with the spirit. Every Ethiopian eunuch needs his Philip to come alongside and tell you the lamb that you're reading about has forgiveness for you. Be baptized. Every Cornelius outsider, Gentile, needs his Peter to come alongside him and say, you are clean. That's what our words can do. Sometimes it's hard to do. Sometimes when you get close enough to people, they bite. We can be nasty creatures sometimes. We're brittle. We're hurting. And that's hard. And I can just guarantee you, if you're going to be in a small group with us this next six weeks, there's going to be someone in your group that's going to be hard to love. I call it the extra grace needed person. I believe God has strategically put in every small group an extra grace needed person, E-G-N. Now, if you don't know who that person is in your small group right now, guess what? It's you. It's you. And you have been put in that group to teach the others how to love. When I love a person with the power of Jesus Christ, I learn what his love is all about. It becomes part of me, changes me, and I discover deeper relationships than I have ever imagined. Well, these are three ways to grow, in the, and we need the body to experience them, to grow into oneness in our unity, uh, our identity, to know that he's the main point of who we are, to grow into fullness of accomplishment in life, to know that he's the main point of all of our work and everything that we do, and to grow in our relationships, to know that he is the main point of the deepest, uh, most transformational relationships that we ever experience. We need a body to grow in just that way. We need other people to make him the main point of our lives. Ultimately, I think there's more freedom in a body with all of its limitations than there is uh, being outside of one. The freedom is it's like the difference between the freedom of a child who may be able to sit up, may be able to crawl, and that of a, a, an adult who can run and sing and read and create beauty 
That's real freedom, to be grown up, to be able to use all the capacity that God wants to invest in who you are and who we are as a community. And we need each other to experience it. In closing, I'd like to close with a prayer of dedication, actually to commission those of you who are, are offering yourselves to facilitate small groups over the next six weeks. And you may be a Sunday school teacher who works with our smallest small groups, our youngest kids. You may be a sponsor in our youth ministry, YMM, middle school or junior high. You may be a core group leader for our university students here at the inn or one of our many facilitators or coaches that are helping us live in community for six weeks across this city. I want to ask you to stand up. Would you stand that we could pray for you? We're not going to lay hands on you, but we're going to hold you before the Lord Jesus in prayer and ask him to bless you. I see some people in the balcony. No one in the front is facilitating. There we go. Okay, stand. Don't be shy. We're grateful for your service and your gifts. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you that right now he sits at the Father's right hand and he is praying for us. He is rooting for us, interceding on our behalf. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who has been sent out on us to give us that experience of what it means to be changed in your body. We thank you for these men and women who are offering themselves uh, to serve as facilitators and coaches and mentors. We ask a blessing on them. We know that they're no more competent than we are. All of us are incompetent. And yet, because of the presence of your Holy Spirit, our adequacy is in you. And we pray that that will be theirs and that will be ours as we gather. And over these six weeks, would you show up? Would you speak your grace in a fresh way into our lives? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.